don't feel so good. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Poison Cast, a podcast dedicated to explaining the deadly science behind toxins, venoms, and chemicals. My name is Scott Barnett and I am a biomedical research scientist specializing in pharmacology and today I will be your auditory cuddle buddy as we embark on a journey to explore the history of household poisons and the modern battle to protect ourselves from their deleterious effects. For those of you paying attention, I took a short two-year podcast sabbatical in order to stretch my legs, finish my PhD, begin raising a couple of twins. Fun fact, it turns out that's a fair bit of work. And to move across the country to start a new job. After all that, though, the show is back. We're very excited. And to kick things off, we're going to do things just a little bit differently today. Now, now, fear not if you're a fan of the old format. That is very much not going anywhere. And we'll return to that the next episode. But I had a unique opportunity to speak with the co-director of the National Capital Poison Center. And it was just fascinating to talk to her about all the types of calls they get, how they deal with, say kids who've swallowed batteries or eaten a Tide Pod and just how that whole process works. And I think you're really going to like it. Now, one thing that prompted this episode was the fact that as fun as it is to talk about black mamba venom or botulinum toxin, unless you are extraordinarily lucky, the way you, the way you're probably going to die will be much more commonplace. But fortunately, in order to prevent that, there are legions of dedicated people out there at poison control centers across the planet to ensure that your ticker keeps on ticking for as long as possible. However, that wasn't always the case. You know, if we go back 100 years ago, the modern specialty that is toxicology didn't exist. There, there were no poison control centers. There was no uh, oversight of pharmaceutical manufacturing and drug labeling. And there was very little known regarding the treatment of poisonings within the United States. So you, you were kind of on your own. If Dr. Whoever's tincture of heroin didn't cure what ails you, you better hope that a little bit of time and luck did. And it wasn't just because the science wasn't there to know how the mechanisms and poisonings occur. Prior to the mid-20th century, there was comically little oversight into this dark world. And well, as you might expect, bad things happened. If you're willing to follow me back just a little bit further as we transition from the Industrial Revolution to the Victorian era in the early to mid-1800s, advancements in chemistry combined with just industrial-scale manufacturing resulted in this avalanche of cheap and plentiful cleaning and personal care products that would be found in the home. And I don't think you'll be shocked to learn that not all of these items, well, not all of them were on the up and up. What chemicals are these, you say? Man, there were some doozies. So, of course, there's the obvious stuff that comes to mind, like lead and asbestos and arsenic, which have been plaguing us for a very long time and still are in many ways. But there were so many other ways to get in trouble back then. How about, like, radium? The use of radioactive elements were all the rage back in the day. They, they were used as cleaning products, as eye drops. People put these in their eye. And medicine of pretty much every kind. If ingested... These radioactive elements could lead to anemia by killing the bone marrow cells, which also cause bone fractures and weakened bones, and it could cause leukemia. I mean, just all kinds of bad stuff. There were other things like boric acid, which was believed to, quote-unquote, purify milk. 
It did this by removing the sour taste and the sour smell like it had gone off, which it did that pretty effective. But, well, as you might have guessed, it didn't do very well doing things like killing pathogens like bovine tuberculosis or E. coli. Not great. Speaking of pathogens, in the early 1800s, we had more or less learned that microbes were the cause of disease, and this ushered in the pre-pre-precursor to things like Purell and Clorox wipes. A problem back then, though, and, I, and on some level it, today it's still a problem, is that ingredients like carbolic acid, which is a very effective um, antimicrobial and also very toxic, the problem is that it tastes and smells great. In September of 1888, in a single incident, 13 people were poisoned by carbolic acid and five died. And this finally began to usher in some change here. Carbolic acid denatures proteins, which causes denervation, which is the destruction of nerve cells, and it can cause muscle atrophy and necrosis. It's all really bad stuff there. And if that's not enough to convince you not to drink it, uh, to give you an idea in modern times, Carbolic acid is used as a chemical skin pill in very low concentrations. So imagine if you mix that with a glass of lemonade. Probably not a great idea. Now, a, a couple of decades later, in 1902, the Pharmacy Act was enacted, and it made it illegal for dangerous chemicals to be in similarly shaped bottles as ordinary liquids, say food items, right? Probably a good idea. You wouldn't want a, can, a bottle of Coke and a bottle of arsenic to look similarly, right? Now, a few years later, we're getting to modern times now, relatively. The Food and Drug Act of 1906, also called the Wiley Act, was enacted by a group that would later become the FDA, Food and Drug Administration. This was our first real attempt to control the sale and labeling of dangerous chemicals. It was, however, the work of a few very dedicated people, such as Dr. Louis Dahlman. He was a pharmacist in Chicago who developed a toxicological information system using index cards. Yeah, like, like when you're studying for a test during the 1940s. The system eventually covered more than 9,000 chemicals. And Dahlman was so devoted to his cause and to his work that he personally took telephone calls 24 hours a day from anyone you needed to call him with questions regarding poisoning and toxic substances. And uh, if you're following along, it, it, it won't surprise you that Dr. Dahlman's work more or less was the precursor that established the modern poison control center as we know it. Over the following decades, following Dr. Dahlman's work, the need and value of poison control centers continued to blossom, and things really began to change for the better when in the 1950s the American Association of Poison Control Centers came online. And it's a good thing they did. The average modern household has over 60 toxic chemicals in it, and that doesn't include stuff like medication. So there are so many ways that an adult or a young person can get in trouble around the house if they're not paying attention. Collectively, poison control centers take hundreds of thousands of calls every year, and they're often the first line of defense if you were a loved one gets into something that they shouldn't have been getting into, right? Uh, with that in mind, I think we should listen to my interview with the National Capital Poison Center right now. Enjoy. I want to welcome Dr. Kelly Johnson-Arbor to the podcast. She's a medical toxicology physician, and she's also the uh, co-director of the National Capital Poison Center, or as you might know, the Poison Control Center. And she is here to talk about what the center does, as well as a new tool they have called Web Poison Control. Thanks for coming to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So when I was a child, I remember the phone number for the Poison Control Center was on the sticky note on our fridge and, and com completely true. I've got children of my own these days and we have the same exact sticky note on there because it's always been kind of this just comforting 
piece of information to know that 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 we can call someone without having to call 911 to see if there's a problem there you know unfortunately we have not had to use your services but to those who aren't familiar with what you do with what the national capital poison control center does um can you describe kind of uh, your mission and kind of how you guys operate sure so poison centers are um resources that offer 24-hour telephone guidance for anyone who has a poisoning question, whether it's a pill ID, whether it's somebody um, who took medications to overdose because they're suicidal, or whether it's somebody who just unintentionally was exposed to something. We are here 24-7 every day of the year to help with those questions. Excellent. Yeah. You know, you guys have a pretty tough mission you know ever since the industrial revolution like the number of poisons that are around the house have just skyrocketed and they're just kind of ubiquitous these days you can't open a cabinet without something potentially lethal falling out of it i imagine you know this is probably what drove the need for these these centers that you're talking about here how long has the national capital poison center been around and kind of who do you serve what geographic areas Sure. So National Capital Poison Center is one of 55 poison centers across the United States of America. So we serve D.C. as well as Northern Virginia counties and two counties in Maryland as well. Um, Again, there's 54 other poison centers across the U.S. that serve every other state, territories, Puerto Rico, um, Micronesia, and other areas. But we, um, we serve the D.C. metro area. Huh. So when I looked up the the number uh, for to put on our fridge and I compared it to what you have, it's a central 800 number. Does that does that go to a central location or or is does it branch out? How does that work? So the 800 number was established, I want to say, in in the late 1990s or early 2000s. And that number will transfer calls to your local poison center based on the area code that you're calling from. So if you are calling from a, you know, if you live in DC, but you have an Alaska cell phone area code, you will get routed to the poison center that serves Alaska. Yeah, and it surprises me a little bit that you guys serve such a relatively small area because I saw that in 2018 you guys had almost 170,000 consultations, and that's just for the D.C., Virginia area. Okay, so those numbers are a little bit inaccurate. That would be a really, really busy poison center. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so in, in 2018, we actually had just over 40,000 calls for human exposures. Um, I believe there were there were additional calls. I, I think there were another 11,000 or so calls regarding pill IDs or other poison information. Right. That's still a stunning number. That's hundreds of calls a day that, that you guys are taking. Um when I mean something even I'm not entirely sure of you know what would you tell someone when they're like deciding should they be calling the poison center should they be calling 911 should they be consulting their physician what what are the basic criteria that you would tell someone so if you're going to call your physician you'll probably be put on hold and generally you'll get you know when you finally reach someone, you might reach the front desk receptionist. So you're not going to get the information as quickly as you may need it. Obviously, if somebody is unresponsive or having trouble breathing or is otherwise in acute distress, you might want to call 911 for those issues. But if it's an issue of, of somebody taking a medication or taking a double dose or or finding something on the street and you don't know what it was, um, then it's completely fine to call the poison center for those kind of, of issues. Excellent. Yeah. And do you guys see like a spike of calls during certain times of year, the holidays for some people or the summer vacation for kids accidents, you know, things like that? 
So that's really interesting. The majority of uh, calls that we get are about pediatric patients. And actually, that's how the poison centers across the nation were first um, were first started is by uh, somebody who worked at the American Academy of Pediatrics in response to questions that they were getting um, from patients regarding poisonings. So pediatric patients still remain a large proportion of the calls that we receive and the patients that we serve. So because of that, our call volume does in general go up when children are more active. So during the summer when kids aren't in school, um, during holidays when kids are on winter break, for example, or on Halloween when kids are out playing with glow sticks or things like that. Uh, so yeah, we do have more frequent calls around the, the summer months and the holidays. Huh, excellent. Yeah. And when someone calls into you, like what can they expect? Is it similar to a, you know, this is 911, what's your emergency? Do you guys have doctors and nurses and staff? Like how does that, how does that work? So in the U.S., poison centers are staffed by a combination of um, pharmacists, nurses, and sometimes even physicians will answer the phone. So those are the people that are going to answer the phone when you first call the 800 number. Um, and they are actually very, very good at managing the majority of the calls that come in. Um, there's always a physician on backup, a board-certified medical toxicologist like myself is always on backup 24-7 for um, any issues that the poison specialist can't take care of. But the poison specialists in general are excellent. They all have specialty training in poisonings and poisoning prevention. Um, there, there's examinations that they take to become certified in, in being a poison specialist. And so they are really adept at handling the majority of the calls that come through. That's really interesting. Now, when you, um, there's just when I think about this, you know, as a pharmacologist myself and the sheer number of kind of toxic substances that are floating around, I imagine, are you guys just continually adding things to your system? I mean, is there like hundreds of things that are added per year? And what does that process look like? Is it a, is it a board of uh, physicians that look at new substances and how they're going to triage it? Or is it, is it a totally different process? So that's really interesting. Um, a lot of the newer drugs that come around are frequently based on older drugs where we have an established toxicity information already in place. So, um, you know, if there's a prescription medication that comes out, for example, in extended release form or a different medication in the same class of drugs that we already know about, then that generally is not as difficult as just a completely novel new drug. Um, and again, there's there's fewer of that latter category. The, um, the issues that we see more frequently are going to be in regards to illicit drugs, for example, because with the illicit drugs uh, that are made in labs, um, you know, you don't always know what's in them. You don't really know how the uh, person is making them. So sometimes we have to just synthesize information as the calls come in and kind of look across the country, see what other patterns are happening in terms of these similar drugs, and then make decisions based on that. Yeah, uh, on that level, I, I can certainly appreciate that because there, I know there are a lot of uh, drugs that people take that where uh, it's so difficult to ban them because uh, essentially what will happen is some of these these uh, pharmacological farms overseas will just change a couple atoms in within the structure of the molecule. It will still have a similar kind of psychogenic or whatever the effect, desired effect is. And so they're kind of skirting these... Um, these requirements, or, or I should say, the banning requirements that the that the U.S. has, but however, they can have vastly different effects and, and, and off-target effects, um, and so it's probably, like you said, very difficult to manage someone who just says, "Oh, my son's laying there and he's talking to the sky," and he 
took something a friend gave him you know like it's that's probably more like a dial 911 scenario i imagine well, not necessarily, because a lot of the symptoms we can manage. So whereas the patient might need to go to the hospital for further care, the hospital in that case is most likely going to call us for information on how to manage the patient, because we are able, as toxicologists and also the poison specialist, we are able to synthesize the information based on the patient's signs, symptoms, vital signs, physical exam, and sort of come up with an idea of what general class or classes of drugs might be involved. So for example, if it's like very simply, if it's an upper, if it's a downer, if it's an anticholinergic drug, um, you know, we we can help decipher that information and recommend treatment based on that. So I didn't quite know that. So it's almost you have this symbiosis with the with the hospitals where you guys are 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 feeding information kind of bi-directionally based on what's what's happening there. So it's a uh, it's more than just being an intermediate to the hospital or avoiding someone going to the hospital. Right, so the majority of the callers to the poison center are managed in the home setting. So probably overall greater than 85% of callers that call the poison center are managed at home um, and that number is even higher for pediatric patients. But for the small percentage of patients who do need to be sent to the hospital or for patients who present to the hospital um, with some sort of poisoning without calling us first, if the hospital then calls us or the calls our local poison center, then we are able to help them care for the patient. And that can actually save a lot of money in terms of healthcare expenses because we can, by assisting at hospitals with, with managing poisoning cases, we can reduce length of stay, we can reduce the use of unnecessary treatments and antidotes, um, we can expedite discharge, and in some cases we can enhance follow-up for patients. Yeah, and I would also think uh, on that same level that there are uh, a lot of people who do not have medical health care coverage, and the thought of calling 911 and having an ambulance show up or even going to an emergency room is, unless someone is actually dying, is pretty much something that's not going to happen. So having you to kind of uh, shepherd them in the right direction, uh, depending on maybe, like you said, a vast majority are treated in home. So maybe you don't need to go to the emergency room and kind of give someone peace of mind. Right. And and again, even if the patient does end up in the ER, we can help save money that way. There was a case that I helped manage recently where um, a patient came to see me as an outpatient in toxicology clinic, which we can talk about later. But um, that patient was transferred from one hospital to another with a with a helicopter bill of $46,000. So now, whenever I get a call about a patient who might need potential transfer, I discuss with the hospital, with the physician at the hospital, I discuss the potential cost of transfer transfer to keep that in mind. Because again, if, if we can keep the, keep the patient either out of the hospital or at a hospital where they don't have to be transferred from, they can save a lot of money that their insurance might not end up covering in terms of transfer and ambulance and helicopter expenses. Yeah, that's really good to know. The, uh, you know, something I wanted, I would be remiss if I didn't ask it because of the first thing that came to my mind when I was looking at, oh, well, you know what, what, what are the poisons that, that are of concern these days was, um, and I don't know if you were at the center at the time, but with the Tide Pod Challenge, um, did you guys see like an uptick of calls or was that anything appreciable or was it just something kind of blown up by the media? So the Tide Pod Challenge, I think, was 
more popular in the media and on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube. The real issue with those single-dose laundry packets or laundry pods is that for young children, they can be very dangerous. Um, in general, the laundry detergents in general that are liquid, are they're, um, they can cause oral burns or ulcers. But when they're very concentrated, like in the laundry pod form, that can cause much more serious irritation to the mucous membranes, to the mouth, to the esophagus, um, especially in children. So the majority of the calls that we receive about um, single-dose laundry pod ingestions are actually from children under the age of five. And in those cases, most of the kids do okay. There's, um, there, I think that we had about 20 cases um, a year where the children had a, a moderate to severe outcome where they had to go to the hospital and get some, some sort of treatment. But overall, the patients do um, not have serious issues, especially if they're in that, that young age group. The, the concern is that there are there have been a couple of cases reported where children have died after exposure to, after ingestion of uh, single-dose laundry packets. So we, um, we are pretty conservative, even though it may be benign for the majority of patients who get exposed to them. We are very conservative, and we will often recommend um, medical evaluation for children that have been exposed to more than a taste or a lick, for example, of that substance. The The Tide Pod challenge was more of an adult thing. It was more of like a teenager slash adult thing where And they're people, not going to ingest a great deal of it. They're just going right. to be grossed out, right? Because these don't taste good. So, and this <laughs> is why also like young children don't really get exposed to a large amount of these products. They don't taste good. They may look pretty, but once you bite into them, they taste really bitter. So you're not going to be like eating them for example yeah in the uh because this is the the poison cast and we talk about kind of mechanisms of action here and stuff i would like if you were to ingest qu quite a bit of it and it were to to eventually be lethal was it just from severe gastrointestinal distress and the burning and you're not able to uptake nutrients or or do you know off the top of your head what would actually cause that to be a lethal dose so again you can get really severe caustic um exposures and caustic injuries of the oropharynx and the GI tract. Um, you can also aspirate or choke on the packets, um, mm. and that can lead to airway issues in young children. So yeah, yeah, that makes sense. The, um, you know, speaking of which, you know, like something I was very interested to know, and you have very good information on your website at poison.org, uh, was kind of, you know, what are the most common types of calls you get? And you kind of said that you, you know, you get a lot of your calls for children, pediatrics, you get um, a fair amount for, for over the age of 20. But uh, what, what, when you get phone calls, what are the things you see over and over again? So it's interesting because it's different based on the age group. So for children, especially children under six years of age, um, cosmetics, personal care products are the most common. So, you know, kids might be eating diaper rash ointment or they might be tasting their parents' lipstick, for example, or lotion or something like that, just because those are items that are generally kept within reach of children. Um, and luckily, for the, a lot of them are not are not too worrisome in terms of toxicity. We also see exposures to cleaning substances. One of my pet peeves are the um, very brightly colored cleaning fluids that are, mm -hmm. you know, sold and um, they have clear packaging, so they look like a fruit juice, perhaps, to a child, and the child might might try to drink that. Um, pain medications and then toys. So um, some of the the newer sort of little ball toys that children might ingest or like the rare earth magnets that are sold these days. Um, oh, those yeah. can be really dangerous, but we do get calls about those as well. 
I um, see batteries on your list too. Is it are 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 kids drink or eating like watch batteries and AAA batteries and things like that? So button batteries are a huge concern, and those are pretty um, abundant around here. Um, yeah, and those can be very, very dangerous for children, especially because they can get lodged in the esophagus and cause burns and perforations. And again, they're small. They, they look like they might look like candy to a child because they're small and round. Huh. And if it is ingested and it goes into the stomach, is that something at that point you let pass, or does that just have to come out? So it really depends on the type of battery. Um, we will generally um, get more information from whoever calls and perhaps send the patient in to have a, um, an x-ray or a evaluation by a GI specialist. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I see uh, on top of the list of the adults is, is pain medications. Uh, how has the opioid epidemic and, and all that affected your call volume and affected kind of how you deal with that? Is that a majority of the calls you're getting these days? So this is really interesting. So people that call the poison center frequently feel a little embarrassed, for example, if they're going to call about something that might be illegal or might get them in trouble. So we don't get a lot of calls from adults who abuse prescription opioids um, to get high. We get calls from, you know, we might get a call from somebody who overdosed on pain medications or who took too many pain medications. But in terms of people who are over overdosing on heroin or some other illicit drug to get high, we don't get those calls. Um, also, because again, if you overdose on heroin, you stop breathing, so you can't really make a phone call. So we, um, I believe in 2018, we only got about 46 calls at our poison center about heroin. Um, but most of the calls that we get about the opioids are actually people who want pill IDs. And so that's really interesting because it's not, it's not what you think it would be. It's not somebody calling from home saying, oh, you know, I have this prescription. I would like to know what it is. It was given to me for arthritis five years ago. What I want to know if it's still safe. The calls that we are getting are from people on the street. Um, there may be shouting in the background, fighting, police sirens, and they, they, they're people that pretty much most likely want to know what they were sold or what they bought on the street. We also get a lot, totally serious. We also get a lot of calls from law enforcement, from police officers to ID pills that they found in a sting or a drug bust or whatever. Um, so it's really, it's interesting how the opioid exposures have affected poison centers. That's, I would have never thought that. So you will actually get calls from, hi, this is Officer Johnson. Can you tell me what this pill is that we found in this bag? Oh, absolutely, because we can help ID those pills. Most of these pills have, um, if they're prescription pills that came from a pharmacy, they will have a number or a shape or a color or something that's identifiable. But what we are seeing now in, um, with higher frequency is people who make their own pills. Um, you can buy a pill stamper, for example, um, off Amazon, and you theoretically could crush up something and make your own pill. And if in that case, it can be really difficult to ID because you know, it might not be like the people that are that are synthesizing these drugs are, are generally not doing it on a professional level. So it can be very hard to make that ID. Um, but if it's something that came from a pharmacy that has a distinct shape and number on it, we can ID that. Huh. And so when someone calls in and because there are so many things that you can't readily identify with something that's in your database, what's the decision tree like? Like, is it based on symptoms or dosage? Like, how do you just tackle something if someone just says, my kid's acting strange, I he took this 
pill his friend gave him. Uh, I think it's from China. Uh, it's supposed to be energy pill, but he's kind of hallucinating. Like, like, how do you attack that problem? So that can be complicated. Um, those. So if somebody calls about a, we'll start with the beginning, a, a, a preteen, for example, that that took something that his friend that his friend gave him and is hallucinating. There are certain drugs and certain classes of drugs that will cause hallucinations. So that would be on my short list. If I knew that the pill came from the friend down the street, I would want to get more information from the friend. And that might um, that might include having the um, the parents get more information, having the police go over to the friend's house, because if it's a, a pill that was purchased from China and it's causing a, you know, an untoward reaction, that could theoretically be something that um, that could be illegal. So in those cases, generally, those patients will, will be referred to the hospital and then we'll go from there, getting collateral informa- information from parents, from friends, um, from the police, for example. And generally, we can assist with those cases and, and treat the patient based on the symptoms that they present with. Again, somebody that's having hallucinations, who is really, really warm, whose skin is dry and flushed, um, who has really big pupils, that's consistent with what we call an anticholinergic intoxication. And um, we know how to treat that. If somebody comes in and they're hallucinating, but they're like really, really sweaty, and they um, their heart rate's really high, and their blood pressure's really high, that's more consistent with what we call a sympathomimetic overdose, where something like cocaine, for example, might be in effect. And we can help treat that as well. So again, Wait. we were talking before about how we work side by side with the hospitals. This is this is a type of a case where we would refer to the patient to the hospital, get a set of vital signs, get a physical examination, and then based on that, we would help the hospital manage the patient based on the signs and symptoms, the vitals, the labs, and things like that. Yeah, it's uh, well, it's evident. Like, I think I read that two thirds of your cases, or roughly that, are are handled in house without having to go in, and you can see because you guys just have this vast level of expertise if i i just still is mind-boggling to me if i were i'm i should not be one of your operators because they would someone would call in and say my kid took three too many gummy chewable vitamins and i would say get into the hospital like err on the side <laughs> of caution but uh but you guys have really really sussed this out and that's that's good to know there I mean, um, our poison specialists are great because they're so calm and they're they're used to they're used to doing this day after day. Um, some specialists have been doing this for you know ten, twenty years, so they're great and they're really calm and they manage a lot, most of these cases by themselves. Um, you know, the um, the cases that I get called on as the backup physician are generally cases where we don't know what the person took, like the case that we just talked about, or somebody who needs to get an antidote, or somebody who has a really weird exposure, like a snake bite or something. else. Else like that. But for the majority of calls, the poison specialists do a great job. And again, most of these calls can be managed at home. Most patients are not taking pills that their next door neighbor got from China off the internet. Most patients are taking things that we can manage. And again, common things are common. And we see the, the same exposures um, a lot of times over and over again. It, well, in, in you guys are kind of sticking with the times, too, you're, or I should say you're adapting to the times because you guys have the National Capital Poison Center has a, a relatively new web tool called Web Poison Control, and it's an online tool that basically is used to determine if an exposure is poisonous or not. It is at webpoisoncontrol.org, and all this uh, will be in links in the, the show notes uh, for those who are interested. Uh, I think you guys have an iOS and an Android app as well. So why did you guys kind of implement this online tool, and, and how's it been going? 
So we talked about this a little bit before, but some people are afraid to call the poison center. They don't want to get shamed or judged if they call for something that turns out to be really, really harmful or even innocuous. So some people are really embarrassed to call because their kid ate a silicone gel pack that might be completely non-toxic. Um, we just talked about opioids. Some people might be really embarrassed to call if they if their best friend overdosed on heroin. Um, and so we developed web poison control partly because of that. Also, because we know that everyone has a smartphone now, and especially the millennial generation, they don't want to be calling from a landline. They want to be getting information now on their smartphone. So we developed the um, online tool for that reason. And it's been really interesting because the patterns of exposures that we see on web poison control are a little different than the exposures that we see um, from poison center calls. One of the things that I've noticed is that essential oils, for example, are much more commonly reported on web poison control than on the calls that we get. Um, and I think, again, this is something that some people or parents especially might feel embarrassed or, or they don't really know if it's worth a phone call because because it's an essential oil and it's supposed to be natural. So they're more likely to go online. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, well, I guess with an essential oils, are people rubbing them on their skins and there's some transdermal kind of a, um, um, a drug or agent in there that's causing some sort of reaction or a rash? Is that what happens a lot of the time? Well, they do that. They might try to drink the oil. Mm. Um, you know, we had talked about the button batteries looking like candy perhaps before. Essential oils smell really good. So if you have a young kid and the child smells, you know, whatever oil, eucalyptus oil or peppermint oil, peppermint oil smells minty. It smells yummy like candy. Um, oil of wintergreen smells smells minty and yummy too. But if you actually try to drink them, um, just like the laundry pods, they taste nasty. And in those cases, even a small sip or taste of an essential oil by a child can cause aspiration, lung problems, breathing problems, because those oils taste bad and you can choke and spit them up and aspirate. I had a, a case uh, of my own family where it would have been very useful to know about this uh, very, very recently. So I saw on your website that half of all calls are uh, for, for pediatrics and your highest call rate or your call volume deals with one to two-year-olds within that group. Uh, as a father of twins, I've got two one-year-olds. Uh, I totally get that. Absolutely everything goes in their mouth and some of it can be terrifying and you don't know what to do uh, as a personal real example of something that happened to my wife and I, we noticed that the bo one of the boys was out of sight. He was being awful quiet, which generally means that something bad is happening. So we went over and it's a little gross, but he was basically eating dog poop that he found on the ground. Um, so what did we do? We did what a lot of people would do. We Googled it. We just said, well, what, you know, what's going on here? And we just look for an answer. But the problem, and I'm sure you're deeply aware of this, is that you know, there were tons of answers, many contradicted themselves. You have no idea if you're getting sound medical advice from a physician or if it was just some mommy blog that had some wacky idea about something and web poison control would have been perfect. And that being said, you know, when I was preparing for this episode, I said, well, let me go to web poison control and see if we did actually did do the right thing and what that would be look like. And I was super, super impressed with the website. You know, um, listeners of the show will be glad to know that if you go to um, Web Poison Control um, and you, you, uh, you, you start going through the process, there's a box you can click that says that you're just checking the tool out so that 
if you put in you took 300 Viagra, it's not going to skew their statistics or something, send off alarm bells. You can basically just, you can check it out, which is a really good thing there. But what I really, really liked about the tool was that I literally, when it said type the poison in, I typed in dog poop. And it came right up. It showed a picture. I love that you can use natural language, that you don't have to be hyper-specific with the verbiage. I didn't have to put animal feces or something like that. It used it, and it just asked a few very basic questions, and it does really cool things. Like it says, this is what you should do right now. These are common symptoms that might occur, um, and it says call the poison control center immediately if the following symptoms developed, and um, it basically gives you a very simple easy to follow within a couple minutes you're knowing if you're gonna if you need to follow up and do something else and i think you guys just did a totally great job with it yeah we um we actually i was just going to mention we do have the dog poop algorithm so we have about over four thousand algorithms now for different types of exposures um oral exposures eye exposures skin inhalation injection bites and stings um, we cover not just prescription drugs, but also over-the-counter medications, herbals and supplements, um, plants. You know, so we have a, a, a wide variety of, of algorithms that um, are written by our poison specialists, by toxicologists like myself. And every case in wet poison control is reviewed every day by a toxicologist to make sure that the information given is accurate. So, for example, today is my day to audit the cases. So I'll be going through every case that comes in today to make sure that no mistakes were made, that, that nobody got the wrong information, and that everything was accurate. Huh, that's incredible. So I didn't know that. So you actually have these algorithms that on the fly based on uh, the age and which would give you a general idea of the weight of the child or whoever it is and based on how much they roughly took. It basically shuffles all that data around and gives you a unique answer based on all the variables. It doesn't generalize. Is that what I'm hearing? That's right. So when we write algorithms, we uh, gather all the available literature that we can um, about the particular drug or toxin, and then we come up with a threshold. And that threshold might be for all ages, or there might be specific thresholds for different ages. Um, and then we will will write will come up with the common symptoms, the symptoms that would uh, that should provoke somebody to call the poison center or go to the ER for further care, and also how long the symptoms should last and what follow-up, if any, is needed. So the algorithms are pretty comprehensive. That's that's really, really great. Um, and I, I'm i just fascinated and love the fact that you have a, you actually have a dog poop algorithm. It's <laughs> just, just well, well played. And with that, I wanted to thank you for your time, Dr. Johnson Arbor. And, and is there anything else you wanted to add before we before we part ways? So I think we should mention that web poison control is, is a free resource. You don't have to pay to use it, um, which is, again, something that, that people should be happy about. Um, we Even though most people don't really think about poison centers until they need us, um, I do encourage everyone, and especially parents, to download the free app if possible. And that way, if you ever need it, it is there. You don't have to worry about making a phone call or finding your smartphone and going on, on Internet Explorer to, to get the information. You could just have the app right there. Thank you so much. And remember, don't forget to put the number for the Poison Control Center in your phone until you actually need it. That's like the worst possible time. The number is 1-800-222-1222. 
And their website is poison.org, which is an awesome URL. Very jealous you guys got that. But you can go there for the web poison control and for lots of other interesting facts about the Poison Control Center. So thank you so much. It was great talking to the Poison Control Center and a very special thanks to both Dr. Johnson Arbor and to Susie Johnson who reached out to help set this up. I would also be remiss not to mention that the Poison Control Center has their own fledgling podcast and it can be found at poison.org slash podcast. They're just putting out a new episode right now about the opioid epidemic and it is great. Definitely recommend listening to it. Another good reason to listen to their opioid episode is because pain medication overdose, uh, either accidentally or intentional, is the third most common type of call they get for adolescents and the number one type of call they get for adults. In fact, would you like to know what the five most common types of calls they get are? Glad you ask. So in children, number one, cosmetics and personal care products. Now, I imagine in recent years, this has become less of an issue. Not that they're going to get less calls, but in the toxicity level, we've been really put a focus on, oh, not putting lead and other toxic chemicals into cosmetics, which is a good thing. The number two is cleaning substances, which can be really bad because those have stuff like ammonia and very strong vinegars in them, which can be very caustic to the body. Number three, as I said, for children is pain medications. Number four, any guesses? Foreign bodies, toys, slash miscellaneous. Kids eating things they shouldn't be. Number five, topical preparations. Stuff like lotions and creams. And then we have vitamins and pesticides. Ooh, pesticides. We'll get to that in a minute. Plants and mushrooms, dietary supplements, arts and craft supplies, antimicrobials. And to top out the list, they have batteries. Now, that's all for children. Over 20, if you're an adult, as I said, number one is pain medications. Number two, not far off, sedatives, hypnotics, antipsychotics. Number three, cleaning substances. Again, really surprises me that that many adults are calling in about cleaning substances, but okay. Then antidepressants, cardiovascular drugs, alcohol, stimulants and street drugs, and the list goes on and on. You can see that um, uh, with adults, pretty much... Uh, Things that are supposed to be helping you are being taken in the wrong quantities, either intentionally or inadvertently, and that is causing lots of problems. And that's why we have the Poison Control Center, because if you took, accidentally took twice your heart medication, is that something you need to go to nine, call 911 for? Maybe, maybe not, but the Poison Control Center is definitely a good first start for that. Of interest to me, and, and hopefully you, is that one of the top 10 calls they get is for pesticides. You know, there are many classes of pesticides, but one of the more common ones are called, uh, classes is called organophosphates, and I find these to be really interesting. If that term sounds familiar to you and you've been listening to the show, it's because we covered organophosphates, uh, or at least a derivative of them, on the VX nerve agent episode. So in a nutshell, Pesticides injure you, at least in acute high doses, by inhibiting an enzyme in the small space where your nerve meets your muscles. Uh, and this enzyme is responsible for stopping muscle contractions. When the pesticides are present, the signal to contract just keeps going because it's not removing that factor. And this can ultimately lead to resp respiratory arrests and seizures and all kinds of fun stuff. In the hospital, it's treated with the same tools you use for nerve agent poisoning, such as like atropine. And this is a pesticide. You can probably understand why people are a little bit cautious of having this ubiquitously spread across plants and animals and grasses and foods we eat. You know, there's, there might be a little something to that there. Definitely check out the VX nerve agent episode if that sort of thing interests you. 
What's interesting is that developing a hyper-deadly agent of war, such as VX nerve agent, is really not all that different to how we develop life-saving drugs. As molecular pharmacologists, we determine how well drugs bind to their targets, right? Whether that's an enzyme like, like with VX or, or pesticides or to an ion channel or to other proteins. And then we tweak that molecule until it binds as well as we possibly can make it, which means that because it binds so well to its target, we can use very low concentrations of the drug to, uh, to achieve a desired effect. And that's kind of what we want. Now, much in the same way, people who specialize in making chemical warfare agents start with the something like an organophosphate, which is not that toxic at a low level. Then they alter their chemical structure until it binds very well to the same types of targets to cause maximal chaos in the body with the lowest dose possible. Medicines and poisons are, in many ways, two sides of the same coin. And creating either one of those tools is... is pretty much using the same methodology. It's not like kind of using our understanding of nuclear energy to either build power plants or to build bombs. It's really up to us, and and it kind of says a lot about us as a species, which, which one we're going to put more effort into, right? Ugh, that's depressing. Okay, on that uplifting note, I think we're going to sign off for today. Now remember, we will be back to our regular type of show next week, which is going to be about radiation in all of its glorious and destructive forms, from radio waves all the way to gamma rays. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes because it really matters, believe it or not. It really does matter. And to tell a friend about the podcast. If you have any show suggestions or comments, go to thepoisoncast.org and do your thing. Thank you for listening, and uh, hopefully we'll see you before the next Olympics. All right. <laughs>